son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We're Mr. Reticle, a new-ish podcast that explores unsolved mysteries. We've been around the block, but only once. So hop in and join us. With our less than stellar education, we come up with brand new theories. But we always Google it to prove ourselves wrong. If you're interested in aliens, unsolved murders, or unexplained disappearances, then come join the conversation. Find Mr. Reticle wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh yeah, and I'm JP. And I'm Lynn. Don't play with strangers. And don't trust your government. Welcome everybody to part two of... Al Capone. And like I had stated at the beginning of part one, there's a good chance that this would be a three-part series and not a two. I tried to wrap it up in two. It would have been a super long part two episode, so there is going to be a third part. Sorry to disappoint, but on a good note, I have the next four days off of work because of the Thanksgiving holiday, so part three will be out sooner than you might think. That promo you just heard, Mr. Edical, M-Y-S-T-E-R-E-T-I-C-A-L. Go look it up. That's my good friend JP. He's been a longtime listener of Mysterious Circumstances, and he decided to start his own podcast. Super happy for him, and it is one of the few that I actually subscribe to because they cover the same kind of content that I do. They cover mysteries. They cover weird occurrences, conspiracies, aliens, all that kind of shit, so... It's a good new podcast. I highly suggest it. JP, you're awesome, dude. And moving forward, we got Patreon, $10 patrons. Like I said, I got the next four days off. Hit me, message me, email me. Let's get those uh, Skype calls done. For those who do want to check out the tiers on Patreon, I got a two, five, and $10 tier. Go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, my Venmo, which is at mcpodcast. And with all that behind us, let's get on with the show. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul socially unacceptable totally uninhibited adult themes language so if you're easily offended if you're easily triggered then i highly suggest you turn this off now and if not just keep in mind parental discretion is advised Roaring Twenties, a town of unending parties, unlimited booze, and unrelenting violence. He became the most famous gangster in the world. Scarface Al Capone was a very, very evil man. He wanted the public to love him, but those who dared to cross him knew better. They called him Scarface. 
Al Capone, the most powerful man in the underworld. For the big fellow, killing was just part of his business plan. A plan to become the CEO of organized crime in Chicago. Al Capone was not stupid. A lot of the uh, gangland killings carried out by the Capone organization were very well organized, very well managed. In the extreme case of St. Valentine's Day Massacre, almost sort of a military operation in some For instance, if anybody got robbed, burglarized or anything, Capone would find your, the, the guy that did it to you and kill him. There was no trials. Uh, the people that were bothering his friends were eliminated from life. Back in the 20s, Al Capone lorded over a criminal empire worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Al Capone rose to power with a deadly combination of raw brutality and brains. All right, so towards the end of 1928, beginning of 1929, somewhat quiet. You still got the beer wars going on in Chicago. Got a lot of dead people coming up. As you know, we cut off part one after Frankie Yale's murder. So let's go ahead and jump in to the next big event, which is the morning of Thursday, February 14th, 1929. Six members of the Bugs Moran gang and a friend named Reinhard Schwimmer we're lined up against the rear inside wall of the garage of FMC Cartage Company, which was located at 2122 North Clark Street, and this is in the uh, Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago's north side. Obviously, we're going to be talking about the uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and I'm going to tell you, like, I had to pick out the information that was more relevant to Al Capone because, all bullshit aside, I could probably do a whole separate long episode on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because there's so much shit that happened during it and after it that you can really dive into. So maybe I'll do that for Valentine's Day or something like that. But we're not 100% sure if it was mostly Capone's gang or some quote-unquote outside talent, um, and that would be like gangsters from outside of the city that aren't as easily recognizable to people in Chicago. And they wouldn't be known to the victims either if they saw them right there off the street. The information that I got is most likely it was a combination of both. Now, a lot of this information comes from uh, historyproject.org. They did a really great job laying this out along with uh, Wikipedia has some great info on it. Some of it's pretty inaccurate, but a couple various sources there. So... The whole plan was to lure Bugs Moran and his men to this warehouse, okay? It's assumed that the Northside gang was lured there because there was a promise of a cut-rate shipment of bootlegged whiskey. And this was going to be, in theory, supplied by the Detroit's Purple Gang, which was an extremely violent gang out of Detroit who's mostly Jewish, and they were friends with Al Capone. The whole plan was that a four-man team would enter the building. Two of them would be disguised as police, and then they would kill Moran and his men. And the way that Capone did this, and it's generally assumed pretty safely that Capone is the person who orchestrated this. Because when Capone, as you learn from part one, when he wanted to kill his enemies, he was very tactical about it he was he thought it out it was planned it was that type of thing he was a thinker 
So a lot of researchers also cite a guy named Jack McGurn as being one of the big planners of this as well. So there's a few reasons that this was planned. A lot of it had to do with retaliation for a couple of guys from Moran's gang who had planned to kill Jack McGurn earlier in the year, and also because the Northside gang was very complicit in the murder of a guy named uh, Pasqualino Lalordo, him and another guy named Antonio Lombardo. Bugs Moran was trying to muscle in on a dog track that was ran by Capone, which was located in the Chicago suburbs as well. Now, there was a huge rivalry between Moran and Capone, as we all know. Capone had, in the previous year, in the previous year and a half, I should say, taken out the number one leader, then he took out the next leader of the Northside gang, and Bugs Moran was next up, so that's what happened. Like, he tried to call a truce, he tried to work things out, things fell through, so Capone was basically like, all right, bro, we're going to get down to it. Now, I do have to say it is disputed that the Northside gang was lured there in the promise of bootleg liquor because it is stated that all seven victims, with the exception of a guy named John May, they were all dressed in their best clothes, okay? Usually you wouldn't dress in your best clothes to unload a shitload of whiskey crates. So... There's a couple different stories on how the gang ended up there and who planned it. Like, it's very, um, it's very wishy-washy. So what happens is that on Valentine's Day, 1929, four men arrived at the warehouse in two cars. There's a Cadillac sedan and a Peerless. Both of them looked like detective sedans. They even made the cars look like cops. Two men were dressed in police uniforms, two in street clothes, Now, the Moran gang had already arrived at the warehouse. Moran himself was not there. One account states that Moran was actually approaching the warehouse and spotted the police car and then took off. The other account is that Moran was late getting there because he was uh, getting a haircut, I believe it was, because he had a date that night or whatever, you know, Valentine's Day. Now, what Capone did was he had some lookouts staged in an apartment building across from the warehouse, and the lookouts supposedly confused one of Moran's men, which was most likely a guy named Albert Weinshank. He was the same height, same build. He physically looked like Moran. He dressed like Moran. He was wearing like a, you know, a light overcoat, a tan fedora. And that's when it was signaled that, okay, Moran is in the building, let's get it done. So the two cars pull up, the two guys who are dressed as police officers get out of the Peerless, which is a car, they are carrying shotguns, and they entered the warehouse in the two rear doors. Now, inside were the members of Moran's gang. There's a sixth man named Reinhardt Schwimmer, who was, uh, he was not even a gangster. He was just kind of like an associate. And then there was a seventh man, a guy named John May. Unfortunately, he was just a mechanic fixing one of the cars, and he was not any kind of member of the gang either. So the killers told the seven men to line up facing the back wall. And there was no resistance, okay? They did not resist because the Moran men thought that it was real police. And they thought that they were basically putting on a show for any of the witnesses because there are witnesses. This shit happened in the middle of the day. It was like 10.30 in the morning, broad daylight, middle of the city. 
plenty of witnesses around. And it was very well known that you could simply bribe the police officers and they would let you off. So they just kind of like, okay, we'll turn around, da-da-da, make it look good for the people who are out here, whatever the case might be. So then the two guys dressed as police officers let in two men through the front door, which was facing Clark Street. They were the ones riding in the Cadillac, and they were dressed in civilian clothes. So the two guys in civilian clothes come in, and they're carrying Thompson submachine guns. They're carrying a couple Tommy guns. One had a 20-round magazine. The other one had a 50-round magazine, which was a, it had like a drum magazine. And that's when the Moran gang was like, fuck, these ain't cops. And they just unloaded the shotguns. They unloaded every single bullet they had out of those Tommy guns, too, while they had them up against that wall. And according to the coroner's report, every single dude there was riddled with bullets, right? And the kicker was, they actually planned this out to have two guys dressed as cops and two guys dressed as civilians so that when everybody heard the shooting start and all the uh, members of the Moran gang were dead, or anybody in that warehouse for that matter, what they did was to show bystanders that, you know, everything was under control. The guys wearing street clothes came out with their hands up, and the two guys dressed as police officers were holding them at gunpoint, making it look like there was a shootout and two guys were getting arrested. They get into the car, and they're gone. And the guys who died were... Albert Kachelik, who was known as James Clark, he was Moran's second in command. Another guy was Adam Hayer, and he was the bookkeeper and business manager of the Moran gang. You had Reinhardt Schwimmer. He was an optician who quit being an optician to uh, gamble on horse racing and shit, and he was not very good at it, so he was pretty much in debt to the gang. He was an associate, though. Another one was Albert Weinshank. He managed a lot of the cleaning and dyeing operations for Moran. And like I said, his physical appearance to Moran is what pretty much set the massacre in motion. He was the last one to walk in, and he was the one who looked like Moran. So that's when they thought, because if Moran wasn't going to walk in there, they weren't going to do it. That was the whole thing. They wanted to take out Moran and whoever else was in there. Another one was John May. Like I said, he was an occasional car mechanic for the Moran gang. He was not a gang member, though. He had a couple early arrests for blowing safes. He had no convictions. He was never found guilty. Uh, and he was the sad fact about him was he was trying to hold a legitimate job. That's why he was doing part-time mechanic work because times were tough he needed cash he had seven kids and a wife so he would take jobs as the moran gang mechanic just to make ends meet he was really trying to just be legitimate another person was peter gusenberg which was a enforcer for the moran gang and then you have his brother frank gusenberg he was also an enforcer but check this out when the real police showed up, Frank was still alive. When he was asked who shot him, he replied to the cops, quote, I'm not going to talk. Nobody shot me. And he ended up dying about three hours later. And I'm sorry, but that's some gangster shit right there. Dude was shot 22 times, still alive. Cops show up, still didn't talk. That is some crazy shit right there. 
The only survivor in that warehouse was John May's German Shepherd, and it was named Highball. And uh, when the police got there, they heard the dog howling, and they entered the warehouse, and the dog was trapped under one of the beer trucks. The floor was just covered in blood and shell casings and dead bodies. I mean, you can go online and Google these pictures. They're easily found. I mean, it was a massacre for real. So I guess on a good note, you know, the dog survived. We all love to hear when the animals survive, you know. Now, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was something that had never been seen before in, in gangland or in America. There was nothing like that before. Yeah, there were gangland shootings, there were drive-bys, there was all kinds of shit going on during the beer wars and the gang wars over pro during Prohibition, all right? And because two of the guys were dressed as cops... Initially, it was thought that the cops were involved because it was well known that there were cops, plenty of cops, on the payroll of the outfit and on the payroll of Al Capone. So they actually interrogated 255 detectives and all of them were cleared of any kind of involvement in this massacre, right? The Chicago cops are like, okay, we need to figure out who the fuck did this. Well, the kicker is... It was well known that the Moran gang was hijacking some of Capone's shipments that were coming in from Detroit, from the Purple Gang. So the police ended up, like, basically looking and focusing their attention on the Detroit Purple Gang. It goes deep. Uh, I'm probably going to do an episode on this for for Valentine's Day because it's just, there's a lot of shit going on after. And there was also a lot of public outrage as well because there were a lot of witnesses, all right? A lot of witnesses. Like I said, this was 10.30 in the morning on Valentine's Day. There were people everywhere. Didn't give a shit, man. Like, Capone got it done. Now, because of this, the St. Valentine's Day massacre and the taking out of five members of his gang and then the two, you know, associates or hanger-ons, whatever you want to call it, the Moran gang took a hit because of that. And after Al Capone ends up going to prison and the control of the Chicago outfit gets transferred to Frank Nitty, the Northside gang just kind of fizzled out in the 30s. They just kind of uh, were low-key, went away, it, it was over. And after this massacre, Moran and Capone kind of stopped going after each other for a while. There was nothing going on. I mean, it was both kind of waiting to see what the other one did because Moran escaped. He wasn't there. So the the Northside gang at the time was still functioning. But because of this massacre, it really brought more attention to the Capone outfit um, from the public and police, and it also got attention from the federal government as well, which is a bad, bad thing for Al Capone. And where was Al Capone when all this happened? He was at a meeting in Miami with a district attorney. What better alibi than to literally be in a meeting with a district attorney at the time this all happened? So, anybody who says Capone was stupid, he was not stupid at all. And also in 1929 comes a Bureau of Prohibition agent by the name of Elliot Ness, and he starts investigating Al Capone and his businesses as well. And he shuts down a lot of breweries, a lot of speakeasies that Capone owned. It's said that Elliot Ness like brought down his empire and da-da-da. 
that's not really that true. Like, they put on some fronts for press and for pictures and shit like that. But in reality, it was the tax guys that really did the work to bring Al Capone down. So Capone at this point has this plan. Like, he's got to lay low, okay, because there's all this shit that went down as a direct result of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, because now he's got Elliot Ness after him, who was part of the uh, Untouchables, okay? Who was part of the Untouchables. So on March 11th, Capone was supposed to be making an appearance in court. While he's in Miami, his lawyers formally filed for a postponement of his appearance and they said that his doctor you know had filed an affidavit which was dated on march 5th um and it said that capone when when he was in miami had been suffering from pneumonia and he had been bedridden from january 13th to february 23rd and that uh, it would be dangerous for capone's health to travel to chicago for his uh court appearance now his court appearance date for the grand jury was reset for march 20th so like i said now the federal bureau they start investigating al capone and this it was because he did not show up for a subpoena for a federal grand jury on march 12th so the u.s attorney's office starts working with the bureau of investigation agents and they started obtaining statements that were saying that capone had attended the racetracks in the miami area and that he had been to Bimini on a plane, and he had been on a cruise, and he had been interviewed in Dade County, and he had appeared in good health on all of those occasions. So, on March 20th, 1929, Capone did appear before the federal grand jury in Chicago, and he completed his testimony seven days later on March 27th. As he left the courtroom... He was arrested by agents for contempt of court. The penalty for that at the time was one year in jail and a $1,000 fine. He posted the $5,000 bond and he was released. And from what I understand, nothing really came out of that afterward. So in early May 1929, that was May 8th to be exact, three bodies are found. <laughs> and it's the bodies of a guy named Scalise and Selmy and Gunta, and they were discovered on a road, on a country road, near Hammond, Indiana, which is just east of Chicago. Scalise and Anselmi were actually charged with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but they were released because of lack of evidence. Now, all three of these bodies had been severely beaten and shot, and the coroner at the time said he had never seen such disfigured bodies. At first, everybody thought it was a Northside gang who had killed these three guys as retaliation for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. But a few days later, a couple of informants come forward, and they said that the three men were basically lured to a banquet with their Sicilian friends, they were trying to break up a fight that was being staged, and then they were killed. Now, years later, this other story comes out, which is more believable and definitely regarded as one of the more popular theories. And it is that Al Capone found out that Scalise, Anselmi, and Gunta were conspiring with another rival mobster named Joe Aiello 
to basically take him out and take over his rackets and his bootlegging and shit. So Capone's bodyguard, a guy named Frankie Rio, he had found out about this plan. And he told Capone, and initially Capone was like, there's no fucking way these guys are going to do that, you know, like you're full of shit. So when they're at this fake benefit that they got lured to to find out if this story is true, Capone started a fake argument with Rio in front of Scalise and Anselmi, and then he just bitch-slapped Rio across the face, and Rio just runs out of the room. So... Anselmi and Scalise, they ended up tracking Frankie Rio down, and they offered to bring him in on their plans with these other two guys, and they they were like, hey man, like, fuck that guy, you should join us, this is what we got going on, we're gonna take over his shit. So after Rio tells Capone about this, they have this elaborate thing, and They create this to get rid of the guys who are trying to betray him. So at the height of the dinner, Capone comes out with a baseball bat and he beat the three men almost to death right there. And then two or three gunmen come in and just finish the job, fill these three dudes full of bullets and then went and dumped their bodies on a country road out in rural Indiana. So after other gangsters found out about this and saw this while they were at this quote unquote benefit, this whole fake benefit, they start kind of like walking away from Al Capone, like not physically walking away, but they kind of distance themselves. They're like, okay, fuck us. You know, like this dude can snap and kill any one of us at any fucking time kind of edgy about that so like all these gangsters who were allies with al capone they start to distance themselves from him at this point though he had killed a couple sicilians he had orchestrated the saint valentine's day massacre he had cops after him he had feds after him he was not safe from anybody but he still wielded a lot of power and he had a lot of money and he had a lot of underworld connections And it is said, and this I could not confirm this, but it is said that after the the deaths of those three men that there was a $50,000 contract out on Al Capone's life, which would be the equivalent of about $700,000 today. Now, like I said, I could not confirm that information, unfortunately. I really tried. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. So the interesting thing is that this more than likely happened while Al Capone was on his way to Atlantic City. And where Atlantic City comes into play is this thing called the Atlantic City Conference. And this was from May 13th to May 16th, 1929. And the Atlantic City Conference was a whole nother ballgame because what this is, it's all the leaders of organized crime in the United States gathered in one place in Atlantic City for this huge conference. This is considered to be the earliest organized crime summit held ever in the United States. And this conference actually had a huge impact on which direction organized crime and all of these people involved, what direction they were going to go in the near future. And another thing is that it was an, this was like the earliest move toward a national crime syndicate, which is, was orchestrated by uh, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano. A lot of these details are hard to verify, okay, because if there's only so many people who were there, and obviously these guys didn't talk because most of them either died or went to prison. So it's thought that the crime leaders all met here at this conference, and they they were discussing, like, the violent bootleg wars that were in New York City and Chicago at the time, how to avoid these kind of wars in the future. And they were also talking about trying to diversify their investments into legal liquor ventures and how to expand their illegal operations. And they basically, they were trying to offset any kind of profit loss. They were doing that because in case prohibition ended, because at this point they didn't know if it was going to end, but they wanted to have plans for the future in case it did end sometime soon, they wanted to be able to recoup whatever money they would be losing from bootlegging. And they also were trying to organize everybody in this national crime syndicate, you know, at this conference, for basically everybody to work together to make everybody the most amount of money possible and stay out of trouble and keep attention off of them. Now, this was hosted by a guy named Meyer Lansky, and if you know anything about the mob, you know exactly who the hell Meyer Lansky was. It was also hosted by Johnny Torrio, who was Al Capone's mentor, another guy named Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello as well. Now, the guy who hosted the actual conference was from Atlantic City, and he was a crime boss by the name of Enoch Nucky Johnson. Now, for anybody who is a Boardwalk Empire fan, you're understanding where that comes into play. Because I, if you haven't seen the show Boardwalk Empire, absolutely amazing. I've watched every season probably three or four times. But uh, Enoch Nucky Johnson was a real guy. They just changed his name for the TV show. So he provided the hotel accommodations, the food, the entertainment, 
everything, and he guaranteed that there would be no police interference there whatsoever. So while at the conference, Chicago was represented by Al Capone, Frank Nitti, Jake Guzik, and Frankie Rio. And these were the top members of the Southside Capone gang, and they were representing pretty much most of the Midwest uh, when they were at this conference. And here's a pretty interesting story from this conference, okay? It started off with a huge incident for some of the guys who were invited, and when they tried to check into the uh, first hotel that Nucky Johnson had them all registered at, and it was this very upscale place called the Atlantic City Breakers Hotel, and this was right on the boardwalk. And uh, the thing about this hotel, at the time, it was restricted to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant clients, okay? So, once the hotel's management found out that multiple guests were trying to check in with Anglo-Saxon aliases, they were refused admittance. Now, Nucky Johnson heard about this shit, and he goes over to the hotel as fast as he can to, like, take care of the situation and make sure everything's okay. But when Nucky Johnson gets there, Al Capone is the first person he runs into, and Al Capone just starts screaming at this dude. And he's saying, you know... How could you not make the right and you know right arrangements? How'd you fuck this up? Blah blah blah, and it's a loud argument, and they were straight up arguing with each other. And of course, it's got to be Al Capone, you know, that's the first one pissed off and being confrontational about it. And all the other gangsters are just kind of watching this shit. They're like, oh, I hope they don't fight it out, you know. I mean, screaming at each other is one thing. I hope they don't just start swinging. So Nucky Johnson takes Capone and he pushes him into one of the limousines outside and he and he tells all the gangsters, he's like, follow me, I'll take care of this shit. They go to the Ritz-Carlton and Ambassador Hotels and when Capone gets to the hotel, he goes inside and he starts ripping all the paintings and photos off the walls at the hotel and he starts throwing them at Nucky Johnson. So... <laughs> So all the other gangsters are like trying to calm down Al Capone and make him, you know, just like, bro, chill out, be quiet, it's fine, he took care of it. Al Capone didn't give a shit, literally ripping pictures and paintings off the wall and throwing them at this dude. So <laughs> that was, I personally thought that was a pretty funny story, but um this whole conference, a lot of things like I, I had mentioned before, you know, that they talked about at this conference and why the conference is so relevant in gangland history and in mafia history. They were talking a lot about the competition for the liquor and for all the bootleg liquor profits, like among all the gangs. That way they're not killing each other and drawing attention to themselves over this shit. Another big factor of this conference is, hey, if and when prohibition ends... What else are we going to do to start making the same kind of money that we're making now? They were trying to decide whether or not to make bigger investments in gambling operations. And another problem that they had to talk about at this conference was the violence problem in Chicago. Because at this point, Prohibition had been going on for nine years. There were right around 500 killings in Chicago 
done by gangs over bootleg liquor. That was a big problem for people who wanted to lay low because, like I had mentioned in part one, Johnny Torrio was very, very low-key. He did. He was very quiet. I mean, he was very capable of being violent if he had to, but he was all about not drawing attention to himself or what he was doing. Now, Albert Rothstein, who was another mentor of Lucky Luciano, along with Johnny Torrio, that's why Lucky Luciano was kind of the same way, along with Meyer Lansky and some of the other guys out of New York. They were very low-key. They didn't want attention drawn. That's why they were like, okay, we need to come to some kind of an agreement. That's a big reason that Luciano and Meyer Lansky formed what was known as the Commission, you know, and brought all of these mob families or these mafia families together to where they could organize and work with each other and keep doing business and making this money. So Capone and his guys lay out this plan to tie in the National Wire Service for horse racing bettors with the daily racing form and to basically lay off bets throughout the United States. Now the idea now the idea was proposed after Al Capone ran into a guy named Moses Annenberg and he controlled the mafia that enforced distribution for William Randolph Hearst's newspapers in the Chicago area. So if they could control the wires for horse racing outcomes, they could control when they would place bets right before the wire would come in to announce the winner. See what I'm see what I'm getting at? Like they would technically know the winner before the winner came through the wire, and that's what they were trying to do, because it's like it's under the radar, it's shady as shit, it's illegal as hell, but it's hard to catch that unless, you know, like Moses Sandenberg would get busted and just rat everybody out. So all of the main leaders in New York and Chicago, for that matter, they wanted to cooperate with the, each other because this could be huge money for everybody involved, especially if Prohibition went away because they had to make up that kind of profit somewhere else in different ventures. So two New York bosses by the name of Frank Costello and, of course, Meyer Lansky, they were chosen as directors to coordinate the operations along with the Chicago representatives. Al Capone did not like that. Al Capone did not want anybody, either at the same level or above him, telling him what he should or shouldn't do with his business. All right, so that was a big problem right there. A lot of emphasis was laid on the fact that uh, all future operations, all future plans had to be done peacefully. And they had to organize all of these head leaders. And like I said, violence was a big problem. Like it drew a lot of attention from people they didn't want attention from. Now Bugs Moran was invited to also represent Chicago at this uh, conference. And it's pretty wild because Bugs Moran would have been the only Irish boss from anywhere that would have attended this. It was all Italians and Sicilians. And, of course, there were a lot of Jewish gangsters there as well, but Bugs Moran would have been the only Irish guy, whether it be by chance or whether they purposely chose it that way. But after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre a couple months before, you know, that took a huge hit to him, and he just kind of was like, no, 
I'm kind of like, fuck that. I'm not going there. And of course, he knew Al Capone was going to be there as well. Now, because of some of the disagreements that Al Capone had with the other big mafia leaders trying to put other people in control of his business with him, apparently, and I could not verify this own information, I, I read it from one source, apparently this pissed Al Capone off enough to where he left. He's like, you know what, fuck all you guys, I run Chicago, I'm doing just fine for myself, I don't need any of you, and he leaves, and he leaves early, alright, because on May 16th, 1929, he is in Philadelphia, and he's leaving a movie theater, and him and his bodyguard are arrested for carrying concealed weapons, and the judge ends up giving them a year each. Capone tried getting out early. He tried bribery. He donated a shitload of money to charity. None of it worked. So he got a year in jail and he just decided to run his gang from jail using the phone. And he was out after about nine, ten months on good behavior. So some people think that he had the gun for protection because of the contract out on his life. And because he had literally pissed off every other gangster at the Atlantic City Conference. <laughs> There's other people who say that he purposely got caught so he could go to jail for his own protection and to lay low while Elliot Ness is doing this federal investigation on him as well. So I could not verify each side of that information, but those are the two main theories of how that went down. Now, while he's in jail, he's getting news from home that he is a target of the feds, which he was. J. Edgar Hoover at this point is wanting Al Capone locked up forever, every day, like trying to raid his businesses. They're trying to get his books. They're trying to lock this dude up because in 1929, 1930, Al Capone is the most well-known, the most notorious the most famous gangster in America. And J. Edgar Hoover, if you, a lot of you I know tuned into my John Dillinger series, J. Edgar Hoover was not having it. That made him look bad. And as we know, J. Edgar Hoover had a huge fucking ego problem. He was not having it. So he's looking for all kinds of ways to just lock this dude up for life. Now, while he's in jail, his brother Ralph is locked up for tax evasion. His good friend and partner, Jack Guzik, locked up for tax evasion. His number two guy, Frank Nitty, locked up for tax evasion. All of them got right around uh, a year and a half to three years. I think Frank Nitty got three years. He was the most. But they're starting to find a loophole. The feds realized, hey man, this guy is estimated to be making $100 million a year. In 1929, mind you, he's a fucking billionaire, and he has not paid one single cent in taxes. He's got this huge house. He's got a couple houses in Chicago. He's got bungalows. He's got houses in Michigan, in New York, all over the place, everywhere. And the thing about that, too, is his house in Florida was in his wife's name. The cars were in his wife's name. His house in Chicago was in his mother's name. So nothing was in his name at all. 
So Hoover, while Capone is in jail, is trying to look for anything he can do to get this dude locked up for the rest of his life. So in March 1930, Al Capone gets out after 9 or 10 months in Eastern State Penitentiary, which you can go online and uh, look up pictures of his cell, and he did not have it rough in there at all. It looks like a plush hotel room, but they let him out before his year for good behavior. But he had way more problems than that. When he gets back to Chicago, he finds out that the Chicago Crime Commission had just named Al Capone public enemy number one. So Al Capone starts doing everything in his power to make himself look good in the public. I did mention in part one about the soup kitchens. In the media... And in the public eye, for the most part, Al Capone is still a great guy. Because, yeah, he's super rich. Yeah, he's not killing innocent people or whatever. It's just gangland killing. So to the general public, they're like, well, I mean, it really doesn't have anything to do with us. And, dude, that's the thing. Like, Al Capone, you know, he would buy your dinner. He would buy your drinks. He opened up all these soup kitchens and food banks and... At the beginning of the Great Depression, he's feeding 3,000 to 10,000 people a day with these food banks, with these soup kitchens. So all these people are just like, like, fucking don't touch this guy. Like, don't throw him in fucking jail. He's our damn hero. So it's working for the most part. And a lot of that has to do with a guy named Jake Lingle, who wrote for Crime and Politics in the Chicago Tribune. He was on Capone's payroll, so all of these articles or news articles coming out about crime and politics all were painting Capone in a good light. He ended up being gunned down by an Al Capone rival. Now, it's said that Capone avenged his death, which is kind of bullshit. Uh, the guy who supposedly killed Jake Lingle he was convicted, and he, and he was sentenced to 14 years. He ended up getting out after eight, and he always claimed his innocence, but he looked exactly like the guy that witnesses, uh, say, killed Jake Lingle. And how do we know Jake Lingle was on the payroll? Well, he made $65 a week writing for the Chicago Tribune. Today's money, that's about $1,000 a week. When he died, they looked at his bank account over the course of the past year, he had deposited roughly $63,000, which today would be almost a million dollars. So it's pretty well known that he was on the payroll. This dude had a couple houses, like, spending money. And now, since the one plug that he had for the media to paint him in a good light, to portray him as a good person, this guy is gone. So what ends up happening with the untouchables? with the taxmen, with the Federal Bureau. I guess you're going to have to find out in Part 3. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed Part 1. hope you enjoyed Part 2, for that matter. At the end of Part 3, I will be reading some reviews as well. Until next time, catch you folks on the flip side.